This morning, we're going to be continuing our series through the Gospel-Centered Life. Uh, We've just got one more message to go next week to wrap up the series. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be examining the place of forgiveness in light of the Gospel. Now, over the past week, I've shared uh, with a number of people that forgiveness was the subject matter for this morning. And the most popular response that I've received back was, man, that sounds like something I need to listen to. I think we've all experienced some degree of pain or conflict with others. We know what it is to hurt as the result of someone else's actions against us, whether it was intentional or not. I think we'd all benefit from some encouragement, some wisdom, and perhaps a dose of challenge in our call to make peace with those around us. And so if you would pull out your Bibles, if you would like to, or Bible apps, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18 this morning. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus respond to a question from one of his disciples about forgiveness. And then Jesus not only answers that question, but then takes the conversation a step further by, uh, by telling a parable, a story, which drives home his point. And this is one of my, I really like this parable. I think it's very insightful. So if you follow along, we're going to look at Matthew 18 verses 21 to 35. I'm just going to start with the first two verses. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Right? How many times do I have to forgive him when my brother sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Just prior to this passage, Jesus spoke about the parable of the lost sheep and then the process for reconciliation among the church. You know, first he said to go to the person individually and then take a friend with you. And finally, if, you know, the person doesn't listen, bring that, that case to the church leaders. Right? So this is fresh in Peter's mind that this process made to deal with conflict. So kind of on the heels of that, Peter asks, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister? In short, right, how much grace, is there a limit to the grace that I need to show my neighbor? And I would imagine Peter felt pretty generous with where he tried to set the bar, right? Seven times. I mean, that goes beyond our cultural understanding, right? We have that quote, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Jesus blows Peter's estimation out of the water, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, just to make it clear, just in case any of you, you know, I'm a rule follower, so in case you're like me, You know, I I don't think Jesus is giving us a literal cap on forgiveness. It's not like 77, all right, that's that's keeping the tally marks, I have to forgive, but 78, now I can finally hold that grudge that I want to to my delight. This is hyperbole. It's a statement that is so outlandish that we're to understand that there is not to be a limit to the forgiveness that we are to offer. And then what follows next is Jesus' masterful storytelling to showcase the purpose and point of forgiveness. And so we'll pick up at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him 
and forgave his debt. Now, in order to, we're not done, we'll, we'll pick it back up in a minute, but just to pause here. In order to understand the full weight of the story, we need to see the literary devices that Jesus is using. Right? The financial figures that Jesus is, is discussing, kind of like that 77 times, are not meant to be understood, I don't believe, as literal sums of money. But we're meant to be symbolic of unimaginable, unimaginable amounts of money for that culture. So this man owed a debt to the king, and we're told that it's 10,000 talents. Now, why did Jesus use those specific, that number and, and measure of, of money, of currency? So 10,000 was the highest number that was used in Greek. And a talent was the highest currency at that age. It, it um, was about 20 years worth of salary for a, a laborer. So what Jesus is, is pointing out here, what he's highlighting is that this debt owed to the king is insurmountable. Let's try to recalibrate this to our modern experience. I would suggest that one trillion is probably the, the number that, it, the kind of the highest uh, digit, the highest amount, uh, number that is used with any kind of frequency. The highest denomination of bill that was ever released for the U.S. was a $10,000 bill in 1969. So imagine that you go to the bank and you find that you owed $10,000 trillion. That's what this, that's what this uh, servant is, is experiencing. Right? The GDP for the entire world across the globe is estimated at $84.5 million trillion, excuse me, not million, trillion dollars. So if you possessed every dollar ever earned across the globe, it would still take you 118 years, more than your lifetime, to pay off that debt. Right? This is the kind of outlandish debt that Jesus is highlighting that the servant has to settle. And so the servant, you know, he doesn't have anything else to lose, so he pleads before the king, you know, have mercy on me, and surprisingly is granted forgiveness. So let's get back to the parable. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Notice that language, same language that was just used by the other servant. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the first servant pleaded with the king and has shown mercy and forgives the debt. And a little while later, this servant runs into a co-worker who owed him a sum of money. And the text says 100 denarius. Now, a denarii was the daily wage for a labor, so laborer. So we're talking here about uh, three months' worth of salary. That's in question. That's not an insignificant amount of money. You know, if I had lent someone a few thousand dollars, I would be expecting to get it back as well. But what's important to, to note in this exchange is that while a few thousand dollars is a lot of money, it is minuscule by comparison to the trillions that were just forgiven him. Right? This case study by Jesus was meant to be an effort to address the question, what is the point 
of forgiveness. I know many of you have been coming to our small group where we've been going a little deeper into this content. We meet Tuesdays at 6.30. And week five, when we looked at repentance, one of the questions that comes from the, the, the material that we used asks this. It said, when the sins of others affect or bother you, what kind of things do you need to see in them before you feel better about them or forgive them? So it's looking as we think about forgiveness. What kind of things do we want to see in people before we're willing to kind of extend that olive branch? And typically, I've, I've heard people, I mean, I've gone through this curriculum a number of times, and I've heard people respond to this question with things like remorse or regret. You know, we feel comforted when we know that the ones who hurt us are going through a little bit of grief, a little bit of guilt for their decisions. If we're going to forgive, we want to make sure that they've learned some type of lesson, that they at least acknowledge their faults before us. And I think, you know, I think that's very natural for us to feel that way. I think it's our attempt to um, try to hold some form of power over them. Because at times, when we have been wounded, it makes us feel powerless. And so seeing someone squirm under the guilt or going overboard to show their regret towards us can make us feel like we can get just a little bit of power back in that relationship. You know, the servant in the parable that we just, that we were looking at, literally resorted to physical violence to regain the upper hand. But I think what God wants us to question when we encounter stories like this is, do we trust God's power, God's power at making things right, or do we trust our power to get things right in the end? Do we need to be the one that needs to be in control of the rebalancing of the power differentials before we extend grace, or do we trust God to do it? Now, before I go, uh, go on breaking down what, what I think gospel-centered forgiveness looks like, I want to highlight one thing. And I've, I, something I've heard too often in my, my upbringing in the church and even outside of it. It's the slogan, forgive and forget. That's not in the Bible. There's, there's a lot of these like, quotes like that, that people, you know, God only helps them who help themselves. Not in the Bible. There's a lot of these kind of cultural uh, idioms that we say. But forgive and forget is not in the Bible. I've heard many people try to force forgiveness out of others with this desire to just, you know, get over it so that we can return to normalcy. I want to make sure that when you hear me talking about forgiveness this morning, that that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm going to circle back on this concept a little bit, but I want to front load with that disclaimer at the beginning. Because too many people have been deeply wounded and, and have been expected to just move on to ignore what was perpetrated against them. And that's not what the Bible advocates for when it speaks of forgiveness. Now, as we consider forgiveness, I want to first look at forgiveness from the perspective of God. Because those of us who are in Jesus Christ have experienced God's forgiveness. And I've got three points to this as we look at God's forgiveness that I want us to consider. And, and hopefully there's some guidance, some wisdom in God's directives. So first is this. God takes the initiative in forgiveness, even though he is the offended party. God doesn't require us to grovel before him. He doesn't demand an apology. Right? Before we take any action, before we acknowledge and turn from our sin, Jesus has already gone and died for us. We've seen this theme several times over the last month and a half. God's love for us is, not, is, is unconditional. It is not conditioned 
upon our attitude, our behaviors, our experiences. God loves us with a lavish grace that is unconditional. At least it's unconditional as it pertains to us. And the reason that it's unconditional towards us is because it was purely conditional upon the death of Jesus Christ. God took the initiative to provide that forgiveness, but he doesn't hoard it. He he doesn't wait for us to show enough remorse or to clean ourselves up to a certain point before he, he grants forgiveness. Forgiveness originates with God's movement towards us. Even though he is a, he, you could argue he has a legitimate reason to keep us at arm's length. So it begins with God. Second, forgiveness provides the opportunity for reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. I think forgiveness is needed to pave the way for reconciliation, but they're not, they don't need to be forced to be tied together. Listen to the way that Paul dealt with their relationship, and this comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So what Paul is saying here is that God's plan is to reconcile the world to himself. And the first step of reconciliation is the offer of forgiveness. Specifically in verse 19, it labels that God was not counting trespasses, sins against them. Experiencing this forgiveness cannot be the same thing as reconciliation because at the end of the passage, Paul is advocating the Christians, the, the, the uh, Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. So in light of this, God took the initiative. God provides forgiveness, which paves the way for reconciliation. Because of that forgiveness provided by God, the encouragement to us is to be reconciled to God by repentance. Reconcile, excuse me, reconciliation requires repentance on our part. When we experience salvation, it is not merely forgiveness from God. If it was that easy, then I think it, you could argue that all would be saved. I, I had a former coworker. He used to say that hell was full of forgiven people. Think about that for a minute. She used to say, hell is full of forgiven people. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't like it. It didn't, it didn't align with my, like, reformational or my reformed, you know, limited atonement and all those kinds of things. But the more that I've considered it, I think there's a chance that she's correct in that. Because the divine atonement of Christ provided forgiveness for all humanity. There's not a single person, a man, woman, or child who has ever lived on the earth that doesn't have the potential to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have all been offered a gift, but like any gift, it's only ours if we lay hold of it, right? if we take hold of it, accept it. And so I would argue that salvation is not just being forgiven by God, but also being reconciled to God. Right? As we saw in that previous point, forgiveness provides the opportunity for reconciliation, but there's a lot of people who might be forgiven, but have, still have no desire to humble themselves to the point of entering into a relationship with God. 
Christian psychologist Dan Allender put it brilliantly. I really like this quote. He said, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but does not lend out new money until repentance occurs. He continues, a forgiving heart opens the door to any who knock, but entry into the home that is the heart does not occur until the muddy shoes and dirty coat have been taken off. What Allender is affirming here is that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiveness cancels the debt. This parallels the language that Jesus spoke to his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, those who have outstanding balances to us. But this also gets back to that point of forgiving is not the same thing as forgetting. Forgiveness is not a call to bring toxic people back into your life. You might forgive them of whatever pain they've caused you. You might cancel that debt, but that doesn't mean that you open the door to your heart again until repentance occurs, until the muddy shoes and coat have been taken off. You're not called to let people back in your life just to hurt you again and again and again. It's not what forgiveness is. I think that's what reconciliation is. But how do we get there? How does the gospel help us to forgive? And I've got two, two primary avenues to consider. The first is this, that we model God's forgiveness. These are the words of Ephesians, of Paul in Ephesians 4.32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God did forgave you in Christ. We've seen the steps that God has taken to forgive us. We've experienced that as we participated in communion this morning. A tangible expression of that reality of forgiveness. And so we can use that as a model for forgiveness. Maybe we see places in our lives where we need to initiate that process of forgiveness, even though we're the the offended party. Forgiveness opens up that pathway to reconciliation, but reconciliation is dependent on the other person. Forgiveness can be unilateral. I can forgive someone even if they offer no repentance in their life, but I, I don't have to let them back into my life when that's the case. Reconciliation is dependent upon the other person and their acknowledgement of guilt and a path towards transformation. Recently, I finished um, the memoir of Rachel Denhollander called What's a Girl Worth? It's a, a potent read. It's, it's a story that tracks her going public about her abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser, um, the Michigan State doctor who also was a doctor for the United States Gymnastics. And it opened up, her, her coming forward and going public opened up the floodgates of other women to come forward until he was finally convicted of countless crimes against these young ladies. At his sentencing, Rachel is on the witness stand and she's speaking directly to Larry. And she, I mean, it's the, the tail end of the book and she, it's just so powerful that she's expressing her forgiveness for what he did to her all those years earlier. Even though she was the offended party, even though she had no culpability in the terror that was inflicted upon her, her words were words of grace that culminated with an encouragement to him to be reconciled to God. She's not going to let him back into her life, rightfully so, but she moved towards him when he was undeserving and provided a gift of words of hope that the guilt 
that the brokenness that he saw, hopefully that he would see in his life, could be healed by that great healer, Jesus Christ. We see here Rachel modeling many of the attributes of forgiveness that we saw a few moments ago, that we see from God. But the gospel doesn't just show us how to forgive. It also empowers us, gives us the fuel to forgive. What Jesus does so eloquently in the parable that we looked at the beginning is that when we consider the sins of others against us, we need to have perspective. Oftentimes, listen up to this part, because this is a hard teaching, but I think there's something here that we might need to take into consideration. Oftentimes, our failure to forgive others arises because we see the sins of others as a bigger problem than our own sins. Let me say that again. When we don't want to forgive others, what often, where that often comes from is that we see their sin as a bigger problem than I see my sin. And in this parable, we saw that the servant had just been forgiven an insurmountable debt, and his first action following that weight being lifted was to try to choke someone else for what he felt that they owed them, owed him. When we fail to forgive, we want to be in the position of judge, jury, and executioner. Unfortunately, I think when this comes, when this happens that we don't want to forgive, it comes from a a small view of our sin and a diminishment perspective of God's holiness. You guys are going to get sick of me showing this picture each and every week. This is the the, um, second one, shrinking the cross. The servant acknowledged that he had a debt. But what he did is he minimized his debt. Even though there was these, you know, trillions of dollars in our account, there was some way of of kind of rationalizing it away. It wasn't that bad in his mind. And so if we think that God just forgives us a little bit, that's going to shrink the cross. We experience little grace. But when this happens in our lives, when someone else sins against us, it's huge. And we demand retribution. We lack perspective. When I adequately understand the fullness of the gospel, I take stock of my grave offenses towards God. As a result, sin that is against me, While I might feel that, and that is real, is small by comparison to all that I have done against God. Now, I'm not trying to downplay sins that are committed against you. There is some really heavy and serious stuff that many of you have experienced that you've had to endure. But if we take into consideration the totality of sin, of our sin against God, I believe it outweighs the stuff that's been done to us. Talking about $10,000 trillion versus $7,000. Maybe, maybe there is something that's very egregious, and you know we want to we raise that up to a million, again, just by quantitative analysis. But even if we're owed a million, our debt to God that we've been forgiven is far larger. And I know, I know this is a really hard teaching for us to swallow. Because when things are done to us, whether they're small or great, we want to think that that is more significant than anything that I've ever done. But I think we need to have perspective of our sins against God. And that can help propel us to forgive others. 
Now, that doesn't mean that all sin is equal in the sight of God. That's another one of those things that I hear all the time, you know, a little Christian cliche. All sin is equal in the sight of God. I don't think that the Bible teaches that. Right? There's a passage in Luke 12, 47 to 48, which seems to indicate that God's punishment is poured out differently on different people based upon their offense. Right? That, that, that's not where I'm, I'm not going there this morning. But I, I think our int- intuition tells us this too. That doesn't mean that all sin is, is the same. But the point of the parable is not for us to compare whose sin is worse than whose, but that all sin against God is great and deserving of God's punishment. Right? That's Romans 6.23 says, for all, uh, no, for all sin is fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. 6.23 is, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, the point of the parable is not to say whose is worse. It's not saying that all sin is equal, but all sin is deserving of punishment. Now, I think that theologically and intellectually, we would probably all agree that forgiveness is something that God wants us to extend to others. But sometimes I acknowledge it is so stinking hard. And I was brainstorming, I was thinking, what might be some of the barriers, hurdles that keep us from wanting to forgive others? It's quite, quite a wide net for these. And, and you know, try any of these on for size. I think sometimes there are folks who don't want to forgive because they're holding a lot of bitterness and anger. Maybe in that anger, there's not enough distance between the offense that they're struggling to come to terms with. It just happened. Someone wants you to forgive like that, but that's not how we work. We're emotionally and spiritual, physical as well, physically, emotionally, and spiritual beings. Sometimes it takes us time to process through that, where we need to come to to grips with our anger or our resentment. Sometimes there's repression or there's a denial that an offense even occurred. Our our, our brains use this as a coping mechanism, as an effort for self-preservation, so that we don't continuously need to be thinking and reliving the past trauma. So I'd encourage you, there are reasons that maybe you can't forgive right now and be gracious to yourself. We might not be emotionally or spiritually healthy enough to extend that forgiveness immediately. And I'd say, if these are experiences you struggle with, I want to tell you, as, as, as a pastor, right, find, find a therapist that you can talk to to process through these things. I know in a lot of places, in a lot of churches, there's a stigma of going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't think there should be. shouldn't be a stigma to seeking professional help from a licensed therapist in the church. I hope we all recognize, like we're all jacked up in some manner. We've all got some kind of foibles that we would all benefit in sharing those struggles with a professional to seek healing. So there are reasons that maybe you can't forgive right now. But there's also other reasons that we refuse to forgive that might be things that we need to work through in light of what God has done for us. Sometimes our pride gets in the way. We know that we are right in a given situation and we are unwilling to give even an inch to that person. The need to be right can quarantine our heart off until it becomes calloused. Friends, that's not the way of Jesus. I think there can be elements of justice that can prevent us from extending forgiveness. If we've been wronged, we want that person to suffer proportional to the way that we've suffered, to sit in their guilt before we forgive. We want our pound of flesh. 
In Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament reminding followers of Jesus not to avenge themselves. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay it. Do we trust God? This is a question that I've had to grapple with. Do we trust God to mete out the appropriate punishment for the sins against us in the end? Or do we feel the need to control that for ourselves? Do we actually believe that justice will be done? And does that give us an opportunity to kind of take our hands off the wheel in our kind of crying for that pound of flesh? I preached a sermon back in 2015 about forgiveness. And as I was looking at my notes, I came across the question that I think is a good mental exercise for us. And it's, it's the question I want to kind of, I want us to leave with and think about. Because I can imagine that all of you have some person or some situation that comes to mind when we talk of forgiveness. A place that you've been wounded and, and it's been hard for you to consider forgiving that person. So the question is this, what is it about that that makes it so hard to forgive? What is the hardest part of forgiving someone who has wronged you? What is it that makes you want to hold on to it so tightly? I think when, when, when you can think through that question, when you can name how you've been hurt, when you can name why you don't want to let it go, why you don't want to relinquish it, I think that can get us to a point of bringing that to God. This is kind of like what we talked about a couple weeks ago with repentance and with heart idols, that when we can identify these things, when we can name them, then we can go to God asking for forgiveness. We can go to God asking for his help in that. Name why it is that you don't want to extend that forgiveness. And I can't give you answers to it. I, I can't tell you, all right, do these three steps and you'll have a carefree life. But what I'm trying to do is give us the motivation to understand how God modeled this forgiveness for us and to get perspective in our lives of just how much we've been forgiven. So I hope that these things can be a catalyst for you as you encounter people that perhaps you need to forgive. I'm going I'm to leave with the words of a renowned um, Christian ethicist, Louis Smees. He passed away about a decade ago. He often wrote of forgiveness. And he said this. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Sometimes forgiveness, remember, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness, sometimes all forgiveness is, is you taking, uh, recognizing the offense that has been done, not holding it against them. When I was in college, I, I, I intentionally took this out, but I'm going to put it back in the message. There was um, my pastor at State College, uh, Dan Nold, um, he preached a sermon on forgiveness, and it was revolutionary because I was going through some real heavy stuff of there's a spe very specific individual in my family that I was having trouble forgiving at that moment, and he kind of opened the floodgates for me in that. But what he said this, and it stuck with me, he said, forgiveness is making a conscious choice to choose to live with the consequences of someone else's actions. Right? Forgiveness is you making a choice to say, I am not going to be bound by their sins against me anymore. And I think that's what Lewis Smedes is getting at here, that when you set the prisoner free, you realize you're the one that's been freed in that process. Not the same thing as reconciliation. Maybe that paves the way for reconciliation, but maybe it doesn't. My hope is, is that we can see the shackles of bitterness and resentment fall away. Because that's not what God wants for us to do. He doesn't want us to live that way. He's called us to something better. I want us to lean into that lavish love of God and his gospel 
to experience his support, to experience not just his, his, um, the way he modeled it, his example, but also the power to forgive others so that we can live that abundant life that Jesus promised us. I think that one step for many of us in that is to learn what it means, learn the art of forgiveness. Join me in prayer. Lord, I recognize that this is one of these subject matters that can be hard for people to talk about because when there are grave offenses to us, it's easy for us to take those offenses and allow it to shape our identity, allow us to shape who we carry them around as baggage as if they shape and define who we are. May you give us freedom from the burden and weight of those false senses of identity. May we not need to hold on with bitterness and anger to things done against us. May we experience your freedom. Lord, thank you for your great, grand forgiveness of us. May that give us the motivation to be a catalyst to see forgiveness in other lives as well. As we said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, thanks so much for your forgiveness. May we walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.